0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Dialogue de Novo. I'm Jake Rome. Please like this show on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. On this episode, which was originally broadcast live on Facebook, Richard and Nico sit down with Professor Walter Tongarife. Professor Tongarife is a professor in particle physics at Loyola University, Chicago, and he sat down with Nico and Richard to discuss his work in Dark Energy, Black Holes, and the expansion of the universe. You will hear me chime in at times. I'm just working on the sound while these three converse. But it is mostly a conversation between the three of them. So without any further ado, please give it up for the great and powerful Professor Walter Tangarife.
1: And uh, we're live. Hi, Facebook. Welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Richard Leibovitz.
2: I'm Nico Spina
1: And today we've got... Uh, I'm going to script the pronunciation here.
2: Just give it a shot, Richard. Professor Walter
1: Tangarife Garcia.
2: All right, yeah.
3: Tangarife. Tangarife. Close enough. All right. Tangarife. Well, that was bound to happen. We should have kicked that one
1: over to Nico. This is the <laughs> downside of being live. Uh <laughs>
3: Yeah,
2: thanks for coming on, Nico. Right, so um, I I met Professor Tangarife about uh, three months ago. Uh, Right, yeah, we have some friends in common and just started chatting up. And, you know, Loyola came up and he mentioned that he was a professor at Loyola, which I found very interesting, even more so when he said he was a professor of physics. So, you mind telling us a little bit about um, what you do at the physics department, uh, what your research entails, and what classes you teach?
3: So I arrived to Loyola in August in the last year, so this is my first year as an assistant professor at the, in the physics department, and uh, my research is properly in high energy physics, and that is a broad definition, it, and it contains things that go, all the way, that go all the way from black hole physics and very theoretical stuff, string theory included, all the way to particle physics and the things that dark stuff are made of out, di- out there in the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so during a normal day, I am either teaching physics majors or non-physics majors. We serve a huge amount of pre-med students. We have like 600 students every semester. But also this semester, for example, I'm teaching the theoretical mechanics class that is an, a class for advanced students in the physics department. Okay, interesting.
2: All right, so... Um also, something that struck me when I first met you is just how young you are.
3: Um, I look young, but it's not like I'm so young. <laughs> so,
2: so you mind sharing with us your age? and? and
3: All right. I'm 34. Oh, it's, you're uh,
2: it's, it's that's I funny. thought you were going to say 40s,
3: <laughs> 50s. You're, so you that's, look great, man. So I'm, so that's, I'm
1: 29. I look like I have not taken care of, well, I'm turning 29 on Monday. I have not taken care of myself for 29
2: years. And, and for how long have you been a professor?
3: I started teaching as a professor uh, a year ago, a year and a half ago. Uh, okay. Before coming here, I was at Colgate University, which mm-hmm. is in central New York, close to Syracuse, okay. a small liberal arts college. Uh, okay. um, before that, I was a postdoc uh, at Tel Aviv University in Israel. Oh, okay. Okay,
2: so you mind sharing with us a little bit about just your upbringing, your life, and how you got you know, to be where you are now at such a you know, young age? It's a long
3: story, so you might be... We have all the time right. in the uh, world. <laughs> I, I am from Medellin, Colombia, mm-hmm. uh, where I grew up, and I lived there until I was 24 years old. Uh, before going into physics, I was actually a philosophy student. I studied philosophy at uh, the at La Universidad Pontificia Bolivariana, that is like a Catholic university, but in Medellin, Colombia. And I arrived to physics because of philosophy. And the funny story is that I arrived to physics because I had a very mediocre cosmology professor. I hope, I mean, he probably is not listening. Uh, <laughs> but so this he, guy... He, he definitely is. Now, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he, I mean, he was supposed to give us a class on, you know, cosmology for philosophers that is, you know... Uh, a survey of the different cosmovisions across the history of philosophy all the way probably from the pre-socratics to i don't know to nowadays but instead what he did was to to project these videos by Carl Sagan, the series yeah called cosmos that uh-huh. is actually mm-hmm. famous in the u.s and, and that was pretty much the class and and for all of us that was basically something very foreign very strange because we were philosophy students, we didn't know anything about relativity or, or quantum mechanics or black holes and stuff like that. But that sort of clicked with me and then after, after I was done with philosophy, I wanted to study something else and then I decided that physics was, was a possibility and I stayed there. Initially, I wanted to be a philosopher who knew some physics, but okay. now I'm a, physics who forgot, a physicist who forgot everything about philosophy, <laughs> but I'm pretty happy. So... <laughs> So that's how I got to physics. I grew up in a, in a very small, in a, in a very large city in Colombia, in Medellin. But I grew up in a time, in a time where Medellin was famous in the world but because of some guy called Pablo Escobar. And, and also because there were pretty much very often bombs blowing up all over the place. And I grew up in a, in a very poor neighborhood. So it was a very interesting place to grow because I had to live from... Very close to my place, uh, what, what it was to live in, in that Medellin mm-hmm. in the late 80s and early 90s. But.
2: Well, can, you, can you share some like, experiences about what it felt like or what you remember from that time period?
3: Uh, it was, I, I, I do remember a lot of things. Um, I think that, you know, you know, not to go into an, anecdotal, anecdotal things, but mm-hmm. into and a general means, feeling. If you,
1: if you want to. By all means. Uh, gonna, it,
3: yeah. It's fine. Uh, it's, uh, but I, I, I do think that when, when, as of Colombia and abroad, when, mm-hmm. you, when you find people talking about Colombia, uh, there are different types of reactions, but one very common reaction, especially nowadays with some Netflix shows around and, mm-hmm. and this popularization of you know the narcos TV uh, or their narco-novelas, as we say in Colombia, is that there is some fascination about this as if it is like watching a movie but but for us who grew up in that in, in those times and in that region it's something very personal because for us it's not something to to watch like a show it's something like i mean in, in my block probably out of 10 kids maybe two made it out my brother and me and maybe one more and so it was so it was a it was a tough time but I think that the main, the main uh, impression that I remember from that time is that, it, is that, that people get so easily used to these type of situations mm-hmm. that for life was very normal. It's not like we were, we were aware of that we were living something very particular in the history and particular in the world. It was just, you know, it's life. Yeah. right yeah. And, and and it's funny because now i mean I, I actually have been fortunate to meet many Colombians in the few months that i've been living in Chicago, but we come from very, very different uh, places like Nicolas comes from a very different uh, yeah. place mm-hmm. yeah. and and sometimes it's funny when you compare this type of background i mean we are colombians we are the same we have the same nationality, but we actually come from pretty much different countries because we come from different environments mm-hmm. but I was very lucky to be in a very disciplined uh, and, and supportive family. I mean, I, 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 was only grew, I grew up with three more siblings and my mother, no father around. But she, even if she was not educated at all, I mean, she, I, I'm pretty much not only first-generation grad, first college graduate, but probably first-generation high school graduate. But, but for her, the fact that she didn't, have, she didn't have education, it was very important that we had it. And, and I think that that was the best thing that she could do for us. And I, that was the thing that basically took us out of that neighborhood. And, and so I consider my, uh, my family very fortunate to have this type of discipline towards the studying. And, and that's how I got to philosophy and then from philosophy how I got to physics. Okay.
2: And how did you make the jump from, you know, Colombia to, you know, pursuing higher education in the United States?
3: So when I started physics, uh, very soon it was clear for me that I, that I needed to go somewhere else to study uh, a Ph.D. in physics. I did fall in love quite quickly uh, with physics. I, I really like it, and, and I knew that I, that I could do it for the rest of my life, and that I could be excited for many, many years about it. So I knew that I wanted to stay in academia. I started teaching since I was like 18 years old. I started teaching at a high school and an elementary school, and I realized that education was the thing that I wanted to do, that I loved teaching, and if I could teach physics, that was the best thing for me. So so when I was pretty much in my fourth semester in Colombia, undergraduate degrees are 10 semesters, and they are very focused on the discipline. It's very different from our university that is a liberal arts university where you study, you know, like 12 courses for the core curriculum. For us, it was 10 semesters, 5 years out of which only maybe you would have 2 courses or 3 courses on on humanities. Everything else was physics and math. But So the, the undergraduate degrees are very strong, but then I didn't see a lot of possibilities to do like a very strong... A graduate st- a graduate program in high energy physics. So initially, I have to admit that I wanted to go to Europe as a philosopher with, with a philosophy background. You know, Germany was for me like a good place to go, yes. but but then I ha- I met at some school, some summer school in Colombia, in Villa de Leyva, that is close to Bogota. A, uh, a Colombian professor who is, a facu- who is faculty in Santa Barbara, in University of California at Santa Barbara, and, and he's a string theorist. And I was talking with him about, oh, it would be so nice to do string theory. But I think that I'm going to go to the U.S. Uh, to, the, to Europe, also because I didn't know much about the U.S., about the academia in the U.S. Uh, you knew that I knew that I had to take some like GRE uh, co- uh, test, one that is general. And An awful one that was in physics that is super tough, and nobody uh, thought uh, that I, that somebody from Colombia could actually you know like have a good score so you can make it to a big university here so so usually we didn't we we, we at the university wouldn't get any encouragement to to go to to the u s but a lot of our professors they had been educated in Europe, so that was like the, the place to go. But this professor from Santa Barbara, he, he convinced me that I, that I should come to the US if I wanted to be a serious high-energy physicist. And, and I ended up, I mean, he was a, a little bit naive. He probably forgot that how things were in Colombia in his time. But he said, like, oh, you have to apply to, I don't know, 20 places. And yeah, but 20 places, I mean, considering that at the time you had to send things physically. This was in mm-hmm. 2007. And that uh, you had to pay for the yearly scores to go here and there and everything. So I'm going to apply to two. <laughs> But I was lucky. I, I got into the PhD program at the University of Texas at Austin, something that I never thought that it was going to happen. I actually had given up on that idea, but, but I was very lucky to be accepted there, and I was part of the theory group that, was, that is still led by Steven Weinberg, who is one of the greatest minds of the physics in the 20th century. And he's pretty much the, one of the three physicists who wrote what we call today the standard model of particle physics. That is pretty much the current version of how we understand the subatomic interactions at the fundamental level.
2: Okay, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what it tells us about how the universe is and works?
3: So, uh, yeah, the the standard model of particle physics was developed uh, during the second uh, half of the last century, and and the main goal is to describe in a unified model, in a mathematical model, how is that part, the particles that are inside the nucleus mm-hmm. uh, or inside the atom. So you have inside the in, the, in an atom, you learn in your, you know, when you are in kindergarten that, that it has electrons and, and the nucleus. And the nucleus has two types of particles. It has protons and neutrons but you can smash those particles and open them up and then you see that it has more particles. Some of them are called quarks and some of them are called called gluons. Uh, So uh, if you start smashing things up, uh, people build colliders to do this. Mm -hmm. So you speed up on a ring, very fast uh, particles up. Very fast by that I mean very close to the speed of light. And then when when you have built some momentum, then you smash them together and and then things blow and, and a lot of new things you you, you can see. And those particles uh, are a whole zoo and then people needed some model that could describe them very simply and, and in a powerful way. And this is what they did. So basically in the standard model of particles we have two main types of particles. We have particles that we call fermions. By that, I mean something like the electron, right? So it has mass and and interacts with other particles. And then um, protons, for example, are also fermions, but they are made of more fundamental particles that we call quarks. And these guys interact. And what we say interact is that they send each other messengers, right? And the way that they send messen- messages is by sending some messengers. And those messengers, we call them Vector bosons, never mind the name. Uh, And uh, the most typical example is the photon. You know, when we see light, what we are really doing is receiving photons. Is that the name Mm -hmm. of
2: the collider in Europe, the Vector Boson Collider or something
3: like that? The the Large Hadron Collider. So, hadron is the name for a type of particle, like Mm -hmm. these ones that you produce, that are made of things like quarks. So, like, like, for example, a proton is a hadron, right? Or a neutron is a hadron. So it's called a hadron collider, because what you are accelerating around is protons. So you have, you inject protons, you spin them up very quickly. And then when they have a lot of uh, kinetic energy, you smash them together. And then when at those high energies, you produce other particles that are not, but all those particles, they fit into this zoo that is called the standard model of particles. And what these guys did was to write a mathematical model that tells us how is that electrons and quarks and all these guys interact by sending each other these messengers that we call photons, but there are also three other kinds of uh, messengers, uh, two other kind of, kinds of messengers, some that are called the W and the Z. Mm-hmm. These are basically the messengers that uh, mediate the nuclear interactions. So the nucleus is stable because they are interacting, sending each other these uh, type of messengers. And then inside the protons, the quarks they send also messengers through other messengers are co- called uh, the, the gluons. So we have gluons, photons, and Ws and Zs. Anyways, so those are the, the two types of particles. And then there is a third one that was missing for many years, and it was the one that people realized was the, the particle. And sometimes when I say particle, I might say field, but I assume that is the same thing. It's not exactly the same thing, but so this this field was the one that that explain how is that things get mass and that was the, the Higgs boson that was discovered finally in 2012 at the at the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider that Nicolas just mentioned and, and with that basically we completed the standard model and that's it. Now that is, a, it seems like a complicated story and, and like a cumbersome model but uh, for a while, we have known that the type of energy content in the universe that is explained by this standard model of particles—it is only five percent of the whole energy in the universe. Right. So, if you take the whole universe, all the energy in the universe, only five percent of those of the contents of the universe are explained by by everything that I have said. You know, like quarks and. And, mm-hmm. and, and electrons and, and gluons and, and the Higgs boson, that is only five percent. The other ninety-five percent is something that we don't know yet exactly what it is. We have an idea. We we have an idea what type of components we have there, but but we we haven't seen them and we have no idea specifically what type of particles they are. And then we that we call all that the dark components of the universe. Okay.
4: So. What's the working theory of of what is that other ninety-five percent? I mean, how do we how do we conceptualize it at the moment?
1: To everybody <laughs> watching online, Jake is behind the camera. Yeah,
4: this is Jake from the sound booth.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so yeah, so, so they had of course this all this had some development slowly, but, uh, but some development. First people realized that there was some energy in the universe that we couldn't see or some components of the universe that we couldn't see, but we know that they are there because of the way that they affect the motion of other things out there in the space. So when you are in high school, probably you hear like, oh, the Newton's law, you know, like, and then that there is, if you have, for example, the sun, because the sun has mass, that's why the earth goes around it. Well, there is a specific relationship that Newton tells us That depending on the mass of this object, things that rotate around will have certain velocities. Right? If you have a bigger mass, then the thing will change, the velocity will change and everything. So people realized that galaxies were rotating, and then they measured how fast they were rotating, what is the rotation speed of these galaxies. And and they realized that, that the stars were going around the centers of the galaxies following a a law for the velocities that was not what Newton predicted. It is as if there were something there that is making it rotate faster than than they should. Mm. So so that was the first indication that, that there might be something that acts like mass because it affects the way that things move around, but we don't see. We don't see because we are not getting photons from that. So that was the very first you know indication that there might be something that we call we would have to call dark matter. We know that it's matter because it has mass, it affects the gravity but but we don't see so it is dark because it doesn't interact with the photons but
2: there must be something there because it's holding the structure of of i i think things that have matter correct right so like if, if so so assuming there was nothing i i think again from my very knowledge of physics that the galaxies themselves would just start to fade because energy tends to sparse through space. Uh, when,
3: when, once you have the galaxy, I mean, <coughs> the, the galaxy is made of stars and they have mass and, yeah. and the mass tends to, they, I mean whenever you have a, a, a gas of massive particles they tend to, they tend to, to collapse to, mm-hmm. uh, to some definite shape, mm-hmm. right, just by the attraction of gravity. Okay. So that is not the problem. Uh, the problem is that once you have the let 's suppose that you form the, the galaxy and then there are many many stars in there, and then uh, the mass of those stars will determine how far i mean especially the mass in the center will determine how fast a particle another star will rotate around right mm-hmm. and and it's supposed to determine it uniquely, but then you see that it 's rotating faster than it should i mean if you if you know if you know how bright the center the, I mean, the galaxy is you have an idea of how much mass there is, because then you have an idea of how, much, how many stars you have. But but then the problem is that there is not an agreement between how fast they are rotating and and, what, and, and the mass that you see. So uh, our, our, uh, an astrophysicist, a female astrophysicist, Vera Rubin, she, does, she was the one, the pioneer of these studies that showed this. There was a previous guy called Switsky, uh, but he did it for other types of systems. Uh, but then people realize that, that you can assume that... They say, what if we assume that this galaxy is actually immersed in a sphere, in a gas of other particles with mass, mm. hence affecting the gravitational interaction there. But we don't see. And once you assume that... Makes sense. The data fits perfectly the expectation. So, so that, that is the, one of the first times that people then actually took seriously the idea that we might have something in the universe called dark matter. We didn't know how much, but we'll get to that point. Now, there is another way, another, another very strong evidence, and, is, and it has to do also with the fact that these guys have mass, the dark matter particles, they have mass, so they will affect how gravity is uh, affecting everything else. One of the predictions of Einstein's general relativity theory, that is a theory that he proposed in the second decade of the last century, uh, basically, the main premise of, of general relativity is that if you have a space-time and you have a distribution of energy, and when I say energy it might be like something like radiation or things with matter, but anyways, depending on what, what type of energy you have and how much you have, that is going to determine the structure of your space-time. And then you you might have seen or you can imagine. That when like, people show this just to have an idea of what is going on, if you have a sheet uh, yeah, I've like seen those a, type of a bed sheet experiments. you know like a blanket and and of course if you if you have you know four guys pulling pulling each corner, then it 's flat, and then you can you can say, well, there is no mass in the universe, so everything is flat, and then the shortest distance, if you just throw a little marble from one point to another, it will just follow a straight path but then if you have i don 't know if you Decide to put in the middle, uh, uh, I don't know, a bowling ball, for example. Then you see that going to There's some curvature now in the in the blanket. And then if you throw the same marble, then it will it won't go straight. It will sort of curve a little bit and go around, right? That is pretty much. I mean, of course, that is a very trivial uh, example, but it sort of gives an idea of what mass or energy does in the to the geometry of the space-time. It deforms. The way that things, uh, the, 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 the straight paths are not straight anymore, now they are curved. So it gives some curvature to the space. Well, one of those, I mean, if you just take that theory, uh, then you know that everything that has mass deforms the space. Now, light basically always follows the shortest trajectory between two points. So if you have a curved spacetime, well, the shortest trajectory is going to be a curve. It's not going to be a straight line. Mm-hmm. So, this is one of the first predictions of general relativity, that if you had a star, a very massive star, in the, or a very massive system in the universe, uh, outside, uh, in the outer space, then if you, 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 could, you could see, let's suppose that, I don't know, the guys, I guess, over there you see, if this is a very heavy star, right, and I have a source of light here, another star. Do you be the source
1: of light? <laughs> I got Right, it. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. All right. So...
3: So everyone, I am the source of light. Right. Go so, ahead. So, so basically, the st- the, uh, the your hand yeah. and my hand, they are on my lines line of sight. Okay, so okay. I shouldn't see it, right? But general relativity, of course, this is not going to work here because my hand is not very massive. But mm-hmm. general relativity says that because this is distorting the way the light moves, then that I actually should see it, even if this guy is right in front of it, because light will go around and, it. Or here, or here, or there. Mm-hmm. And if they are perfectly aligned, I should see a ring, because basically light is bending all around. And so that was one of the first predictions. And then they actually traveled to Brazil, Eddington led the expedition, where they they, they actually took advantage of an eclipse. So they, so basically the moon was going to be in front of the sun, so we could look in the direction of the sun without going blind. And 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 voila, they saw some star that they knew was going to be behind the sun in our line of sight, and they saw it on the sides. They actually saw four, four versions of the same star, but it's because, you know, it's going all, all around. We call, sometimes people call that the Einstein star, just because, I mean, that phenomenon. But that was the very first prediction. So, now, how is that, is this, this is related with dark matter? When, when people in the night, in the, at some point, they use the Hubble telescope, to look to a dark spot in the universe, just yes, you know, because no, nobody has looked there, so they just pointed the Hubble telescope, this is the space telescope, uh, towards a dark patch of the universe where apparently there was nothing, and they let it observe for, for some time. They realized, when they opened the data, they saw that it was like a soup of, I mean, they could see a soup of galaxies, you know, it was like a whole distribution of very mm-hmm. bright spots. And that showed us first that, that the universe is pretty much homogeneous, that anywhere you, you, you look at, you will see the same type <coughs> of distribution of things. But also they realized that there, were some, there was some light that was being distorted. So some, some stars, they looked like a little bit squeezed. And, but the funny thing is that they say, well, What is what is squeezing that? Because we don't see anything in front of that that is causing the distortion. We call that distortion gravitational lensing, because it's like gravity is acting like a lens. and But they didn't see what was causing that uh, lensing. Mm-hmm. Well, the best explanation for what is causing that lensing is that there must be some accumulation of something that has mass, but that we don't see that is causing the distortion in the space-time. And that is dark matter. Uh, and then the, last, the, the third thing that I want to mention that really tells us dark matter is out there. Uh, the radiation that we have received from the, is the, the oldest radiation in the universe. This is a radiation that was produced at the moment when the universe was expanding, initially photons and electrons, they were a soup and they were, they were just mixed with each other. And at some point, because the universe was expanding, they couldn't talk fast enough so that they decouple. And, and at that moment, some radia- the radiation, the photons were emitted. And, and they started traveling across the universe. And nowadays they are getting to us. Uh, we call this the cosmic background radiation. And I mean when you are, you are, apparently you are much younger than me, so uh, when we were kids, right, mm-hmm. you had like an antenna, you didn't have cable, right, it was like an antenna. And, and when you didn't have any signal, you would, you would see just the shh, the, yeah. the, the mm-hmm. noise in the. That is the radiation right that is like, something like that is the cosmic background radiation It's some shower that we're getting all the time from very very I mean, from the beginning of the universe and but of course people were able to collect that data i mean but this happened only at the at the end of the last century that they actually started becoming good at analyzing the, that radiation they they started analyzing the different signals, is very homogeneous. That's why you see that sh- it's always, like, gray. But you see that there are tiny spots, more white or more black or something like this. So, so they, they, they realize something like that with the cosmic background radiation. And they could, they could match, basically, that with variations in the temperature of the universe at the time. Mm. And so you can do some statistical analysis of this. And what you obtain is something that we call the power spectrum. Never mind that. That is some plot that tells us and depending on how in what direction you look, right how to po- or how far they are in the in the sky, how two different spots are correlated or anything, the fun thing is that from that from doing that from analyzing that data, you can obtain a lot of information you can obtain the information about how old the universe is. we know now that we are like thirteen point seven billion years old you know uh, and more importantly, you know. Uh, that the universe is compo- is made of three main components, right? One that is the visible matter that we see, and from that is that we, that, that we know that we that is exactly like five percent, or uh, more or less five percent. And but also you know how much of the whole universe is made of matter, regardless if it is the visible or the dark one, and it is something like thirty percent. That's how we know that. If, 5% is the visible matter, then the rest of it, 25, is what we don't see. And, but also we know that the rest of it, the 70% that, that is left of the universe, is made of something that is not matter, but it's not radiation. It's something that we have no idea what it is. It behaves as, as if something, there were something in the universe that doesn't go away, that is constant. That we call dark energy. And some people call it also cosmological constant. But, but yeah, I think that that is the greatest mystery in physics. I don't know if we will solve it, but, uh, but right now the, we say that the universe is dominated by something that we have no idea what it is, that, we, that is called dark energy. And that, that thing makes the universe expand every time faster. So we say that today the universe is accelerating due to the dominance of this dark energy. Okay, so my
1: understanding of the universe, which is very minimal, uh, is in the concept of inf- that it's infinite.
3: Uh, what? Well,
1: no. Okay. <laughs> so that, yeah, because it, I mean, in, the an, an the infinite expanding. universe can't expand. So that's where I'm getting thrown here, so... Go ahead. I'm, well, but it's not like And I understand not, yeah. that what I'm at, that what I just asked you is equivalent to asking a well, not equivalent. It is asking a very stupid question, but no, I, I need not, that explained yeah, it, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It,
3: it is not like the universe doesn't it has a boundary that yeah. is expanding. I mean you cannot you cannot get to, you know, like here is the universe and this is where it's expanding. Because there is no I mean there is no there is no space time outside the universe. The universe is the space time. So mm-hmm. it's not like there is a boundary. Right? Right. So I mean, I hesitate to use the word infinite because I don't know what that means. Uh, I know that the universe has a finite, at least from what we have learned from the cosmic background radiation, it it has been expanding for a finite amount of time. That is this 13.7 years, right? But, But I hesitate to say that the universe has a boundary that is expanding. I mean, that, that you see... Sometimes people do, do describe the, the expansion of the universe with a balloon and that is inflating. But that sort of gives the impression that there is a shell yeah. that we call the boundary of the universe and that that thing is the one that is expanding. But no, the universe doesn't have a, that's a, doesn't have a boundary. It doesn't have a shell. So if something that, that doesn't have a shell, you call it infinite, uh, yeah, you might as well call it like No, that, b- no
1: beginning, no ending.
3: Well, we don't... We, in the, in the current cosmological model, there was a beginning, right? That beginning, we call it the Big Bang, yeah. right? That's because we, can, we know that if the universe has been expanding, we have been able to understand pretty well the law that the universe follows as it expands. So, mm-hmm. so basically, we can extrapolate that in time. And, and the, the very first moment of the universe should have been, you know, all the, universe of, all the energy of the universe concentrated in a single point. Right, we call that the singularity. That is one of the biggest uh, understand, But understanding the physics of that moment would require to develop a theory that we call the theory of quantum gravity, because at that point, there are some effects that we don't understand yet. Because you would have to, to have a full theory of gravity, including the quantum aspects. I mean, I know that I just mentioned a word that I mm-hmm. hadn't mentioned before, that is quantum. But, uh, but, but anyways, the theory that, w- that we have y- is not yet complete to understand what happened at that initial moment. Mm-hmm. But we do know that what we have from the data points to the fact that there was an initial moment in the universe and that it has been expanding ever since. Now, what happens before that initial moment that, we, that is from where we are getting all this radiation that we call the cosmic background radiation, that uh, I mean, there are theories. I mean, some people some people claim that there might be that the universe might be instead of having a big bang, it was like a big bounce. So that the universe was initially already expanded, and it shrank, and then it started expanding again. Mm-hmm. But but we don't. I mean, but I and f- the other popular one. Say that again. And the other popular one. Oh, the, which one? Th- that would be God. Oh, ah, <laughs> oh, well, yeah, but that is not that, that is not I know, I know. A, I, know. I, was just saying, I was just <laughs> yeah. making a making so, a side comment, right? So, so uh, look, I'm not going <laughs> to contribute much here. I gotta <laughs> throw them in when I can. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so yeah, but but we don't have no we have no signature that 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 can tell us if <coughs> indeed there was just a bang or a bounce. Yeah. But so far we know that there was a very initial moment in the universe from from which we have information. And that is what we call today the hot big bang because we we get the information from this radiation. Uh, but so in that sense, we say that the universe has a has an age, right? It's thirteen point seven billion years, and 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 those thirteen point seven billion years we have understood um, uh, quite well, I think. I mean, there are many gaps, of course, but but we have a pretty good picture of how things happened. Mm-hmm.
2: So I, I was watching once uh, discussion between uh, Richard Dawkins and Lawrence Cross, who's a, a physicist. Yes. And he was he mentioned in this discussion how you could get something from nothing, and it could be mathematically proven. But I don't know if you have any insight into that, because that was very confusing
3: for right, me. Right. Uh, the the argument that some people claim, Stephen Hawking also was one of the, uh, propos- uh, the, the people who proposed uh, something similar is that, I mean, it's not so much that you can create something from nothing, uh, Is that you can create something from the vacuum. Okay. So there is something in the in physics that is called the vacuum, that is basically the lowest state in terms of energy in which a system can be. right? So space-time uh, has a vacuum, Has there is some energy in the vacuum. So that sounds very abstract, but it is as if you... It, Indeed, it is as if you have nothing, but that nothing is not really nothing. There is something called the vacuum there, and that vacuum has energy. And one of the, uh, I have mentioned here the general relativity, the other fundamental theory uh, uh, that was developed in the uh, uh, right around the time when Einstein also developed the uh, general relativity is called quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is pretty much the physics of things that happened inside an atom, and anything smaller than that. Mm. And one of the one of the principles in quantum mechanics is that I mean you cannot you cannot that, that every anything that has energy in the in the universe has is always oscillating let's call it like that there are some there are some fluctuations of of anything that you you never have like something completely at rest right there are always some some fluctuations we call those quantum fluctuations and the vacuum also quantum fluctuates. Basically, by that means that if you had, for example, the vacuum, that is the absence of particles, you have no particles whatsoever. Really, in that vacuum, what is happening at a very high speed that you don't even know is that there, is, there are particles that are being created, say like electron and anti-electron that we call a positron, and they annihilate right away. So they mm-hmm. are created and, and, and that those things are interpreted as, that's how people interpret sometimes the quantum fluctuations of this so so in that regard you say that that when from the vacuum you create a particle an antiparticle, you are creating something spontaneously out of nothing but it's not really that it's nothing i mean vacuum is not nothing vacuum is just the fact that there are no particles but space-time itself has some energy uh, we, we call that actually the vacuum energy but never mind the name uh, and, and then from that is that these particles are created. So some people believe that at the beginning of the universe, well, all the universe was just confined in one point, point, that the va- and there was nothing, that's why we say there was a vacuum, but when it's with, there was nothing, we mean is that there was no particles or any type of particles around, but the vacuum was there, and the vacuum had, energy, had all the energy of the universe, and that these fluctuations were happening and Because it was so dense, it was a bit unstable, and then it was possible that that that, that uh, instability just broke, and and then that was the big bang, right? But uh, honestly, I I don't I don't think that there is a, an agreement on that in the community. Uh, there are people who have very strong opinions, and and there are people who work on this, uh, but I don't I don't think that we have a full theory of quantum gravity that would tell us. Really, what happened? Because to understand that, then we have to put together these quantum mechanics, the physics of the things that are inside the atoms, and gravity, the physics of the very big things, together. But that has been a challenge for the last 100 years, pretty much. I don't know if that answers the question, but no, I don't know. A- o- On the scale from one to ten, how lost you- are you? No, you're. <laughs> no, how, do put- how do I put this properly? I'm you're right dumbing
1: track. it down just enough for me, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> Hello, yeah, yeah.
2: I think you were going to ask a question, Jake.
4: Yeah, uh, Jake from the booth again. Um, <coughs> hi, Jake. What, what's string theory? What is that?
3: Oh, wow. That's okay. It's a tough so, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, string theory is a theory that was developed in the last uh, few decades of the past century as an attempt to put together precisely what I just said: the the standard model of particles that describes the subatomic physics, right, so with quantum mechanics included, and the theory of gravity, and the theory of general relativity. And then the main proposal, just pictorially, is that the fundamental components of of the universe are not particles, like the electron, but something even, even more fundamental that are called strings. And they are called strings because... There are just some objects that are extended, but they are extended not in four dimensions, but in 10 dimensions. And, and the manifestations of those, so like, in the same way that you have in a guitar, a string, you see that there are some fundamental modes, right? You have like the fundamental mode, and then the octave, and you have all these harmonics. So string theory says that the particles that we see as fundamental particles are really just uh, vibration modes. Of these of these more more elementary elementary objects that we call strings, and that they live in ten dimensions but since but, but since we live in four, of course we don't see those ten dimen- those, those extra six dimensions those extra six dimensions they are compactified by that I mean that they are basically wrapped in such a way that we don't see them because they are they might be tiny uh, of course I mean that is very sic- probably wrong what I just said because it's very simple i mean the story is much more complicated. But but the reality is that there is no experimental uh, signature or experimental evidence that points to that really being the theory. I think that theoretically, even there are some challenges to really obtain standi- start, starting from that theory and then, you know, making it more effective. That is going to to more simpler to simpler or more actually more complex I guess to basically getting rid getting rid of all the complexity to get to basically to our levels of energy where we live, right? To see if we recover the physics that we have. There are some challenges there. But, but I think that the main the main argument for against string theory is that that, that we cannot test it so far. But we, it
2: makes sense mathematically.
3: Mathematically, yeah, it is a it is a consistent theory, right? And yeah, and and it makes sense, but but we don't have any any way of testing it experimentally, nor we have any any evidence that that sort of you know encourages to 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 keep thinking about that. Of course, people have worked on that a lot. I myself uh, during my PhD worked in, on string theory, but really, what has changed in the past uh, two decades? is that people stop thinking about string theory as the fundamental theory of the universe. Mm -hmm. Because probably it's not. But they started using many things that they had learned from string theory, and especially some mathematical tools and some computational tools. When I say computational, I mean like, you know, methods to solve stuff, not computers. But So uh, uh, some, some tools from string theory to apply to studying other systems. Like black holes or systems or where particles interact very strongly with each other, we call them like strongly coupled or strongly correlated systems, but basically are systems where the interactions are very strong and because they are very strong, we cannot use the simple methods that we had we were using for example in atomic physics uh, to study those systems so so it's actually a very still a very active uh, research area, but where people are more than trying to find the theory of everything, they are trying to understand better how gravity works and how quantum mechanics works with those tools, mm-hmm. more than you know, trying to write again all the standard model in terms of strings. Uh, there are people who still do it, but I think that the majority of the community has uh, shifted towards other interests. Mm-hmm. Also very fundamental, I think that more fundamental, because all of them have to do with understanding gravity at the most fundamental level
2: okay, okay so so another question i had <coughs> is that usually when you talk to people layman people uh and you throw the word theory uh yeah. they, they tend to discredit uh, the word sometimes right. outright because yeah. oh it's just they're just theorizing yeah yeah so yeah. maybe if you could just distinguish between the layman terms theory and a scientific theory right
3: unfortunately <laughs> in english yeah people you mean yeah we say we hear ourselves saying like ah, I don't know what they say but I have a theory. Uh, that what they have is a hypothesis, right? That's yeah. yeah, in 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 science when we say theory is basically a set of laws that have that are self-consistent or that are consistent with certain principles and and that have power of prediction and also they have power of testability. Right? Uh, when people talk about the, theory, the the evolutionary theory, right? Some people in English say like, ah, oh, but evolution, of course, is not true. It's just a theory. No, it's a theory, right? But it's a theory in the sense that it's scientifically valid and it's scientifically proven. Mm-hmm. And we, so we have the, 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 the theory of particle physics, so the standard model theory, for example. That is something that we have. I mean, we built a collider that costed a lot cost a lot of money, uh, and we have found the particles that it predicted, all of them, right? So... So that's when, when we say theory is, is, is not something that somebody's guessing, right? It's not a guess. A theory is a very well-organized uh, set of statements and, and uh, predictions, right? Uh, I guess what people say, yeah, in the normal lingo for a theory is more like a hypothesis. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you can have a hypothesis. Some, some of them are more educated than others, but, but they are hypotheses. But it, there is a big jump between a hypothesis and, and a theory.
2: Okay. Do you find it hard trying to communicate um, what you have, like the knowledge that you carry with you, with? Um,
3: well, it's not like I carry a lot of knowledge. It's not so heavy. Oh, but I mean, <laughs> compare
2: compared to the average person, like you know, like <laughs> myself, for example, we don't really have this grasp of how you know the universe works, um, and I, I guess a lot of big decisions, especially in policy, are made without any knowledge whatsoever of. Of, uh, I don't know if that's something that's frustrating.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are, there are just, I, just, I, I do have many opinions about this, but uh, okay, I have to start by saying that, that I am 100% convinced that we as scientists, we have a huge responsibility about uh, telling everyone what we do and why we do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it is we need to become very good teachers and we need to become very good educators just mm-hmm. because this is what we do. But also, we need to talk more to the public. Sometimes when when I, when I hear, uh, you know, in public television, I don't know, say the leader of a nation uh, making statements that are completely unscientific. And uh, I, I think that sometimes the scientists, we have the, we are at fault because sometimes we don't communicate with the public enough. That on one hand, on the other hand, I, Sometimes, yeah, it is frustrating when when I mean we live in a in a time where people can say anything, and and they and, no, and not, nobody is is held is held accountable for what they're saying, right? And the problem with that is that people start believing that they can do the same with science. So. So, so people, I mean, you hear things like, oh, in terms of climate change, I prefer to look at both sides of, of science. So what do you mean both sides of science? It's as if I go to the doctor and the doctor tells me, well, you have cancer, you're going to die. And then say, well, what is the other side? <laughs> you don't have cancer, you're not going to die. Oh, but I yeah. feel much better now <laughs> because, <laughs> because I'm looking at both sides. That is not, right. it's not something that you, I mean, you can believe whatever you want, mm-hmm. but you won't, that, that won't change the, the facts. I mean, you can, believe, you can believe that today is not, not cold, right? You can believe firmly that today is a very warm day. That doesn't change the fact that if you go out without a jacket, I mean, it's like what, minus 15 Celsius. I don't know how much that is in Fahrenheit, but it's cold. Yeah. It's freezing cold. That, that won't change by the fact that you don't want to believe it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so with science, it's not a matter of if you want to believe it or not.
1: I think uh, one of the glaring examples of this is the... Uh, is the belief that vaccinations for some reason cause autism. Right. So I don't, yeah, I I don't, I'm sure that's outside of the scope of this conversation, but is is that, that's, is that an example of what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah.
3: That is a, that is a very, a very clear example. Uh And, and the thing is that people, then people become very anecdotal at this. They say, well, you see, I know somebody who did this and that, but that just reminds me when I was like, when, I mean, when you hear somebody saying, yeah, of course astrology works. Mm-hmm. I, I went to this person, and that person told me exactly what I was going to do tomorrow. So, well, then how many how many times this person has has said something to people that is not exactly that? I mean, that is just. I mean, I, 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 this might be like a trivial example, but there's a friend of mine who, whenever he goes to a bar, he and he wants to he wants to use a pickup line on a girl. He's, he's like, I'm a psychic. Says, so, say number from one to ten, from one to one hundred, and then I don't know, the girl would say I don't know, thirty-seven. And so, and he said, well, no, I was, you know, I was thinking 46 or something like that. So and, and it never works. But, right. then, but then he said, well, it, yeah, it, it never works. But imagine the day that it works. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're going to they're gonna say, like, oh, my God. That, so, so that is it just, it just probability, right? So if people, if people will just, you know, grab some very specific case and then generalize it to, oh, this is why we cannot believe science because look at this. This happened. That, uh, I mean, that, that is pretty much a, a, a just that is proof that people don't understand how science works. I mean, I, I don't know how people think that scientists do science. I don't know if they, is that they believe that we are just on a, you know, on a coffee room uh, saying, well, let, let's, think, let's make up something and then we sell it. No, I mean, there, are, there is a very specific method. And that is what makes science valuable. Uh-huh. And that, uh, that is a specific method that has a very rigorous process. And when we say, when a scientist goes out and publishes a paper uh, and sh- showing the result, I mean, that is not something that was made up in, in, some, in some study, you know, just to, to bluff. It's true that, that, that there have been problems in science. And against that, we also have to be, I mean, one of the points of science is that you cannot ever give something as completely true. You can't, I mean, science is, pre- that, but that is the big, that is the great thing about science. That's why we have been making progress during the last, I don't know 500 years in physics, for example, because we are never sure that the theory that we have so far working is going to be the ultimate theory, right? right? There, there might be there is always some room for improving, and that is something that actually you don't see in the counterparts of the for scientific sure. approaches, because everything is already is a belief that is already given and it won't evolve. So, so yes, so I do think that that we need more science education today, and. And we need to educate our our politicians. Uh, I mean, it, it, is, it is frustrating when you see... When Do you, you know what's
1: going to happen if you educate the politicians? <laughs> what's going to happen? They'll no longer be politicians, and we're just going <laughs> to get a new crop of dumber politicians. Because they're well, because it's hard to explain to the lay person, so that's going to be a... They're, they're just going to be seen as can't communicate with the average man, and then they're out. I, I think it's it's a tragedy, and it's something that we need to deal with. But I'm with you.
4: Are you are you referencing like this new populism that abhors like intellectually elite people? Is that what you're referring to?
1: Uh, somewhat, yes. But to the ex- one of one thing, in order to win elections, you have to be relatable to people.
4: Okay. So if
1: I, 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 you know, I wouldn't. I. I yeah, the if if they became intellectuals in this area and the average person couldn't explain it anymore, or, or they couldn't explain it to the average person anymore, the average person would just do away with them. Yeah, because but that's why I like reason, I like yeah. I
2: like you know Professor Tangarifa's point that it's it's the public that you should focus on. Right. Yeah. yeah I don't see. I
3: yeah. Agree. I I I am I completely against the fact that if some just because somebody said let me clarify, it, it's a problem that I'm with you 100. Okay. percent Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. No, but but I I. I, I do think that we have to educate. I mean, not only politicians. We have to educate everyone. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a problem for for politicians because when when they when people become educated, <laughs> then they don't believe anything that they everything that they are telling them. But yeah. uh, but but I don't see any problem with having everyone educated. And and and, and initially, if they are well educated, they should that shouldn't create any gap between the people and them. Mm-hmm. Because again, any person who I mean. For example, Feynman was a great physicist from the last century, and he used to say that, that if you cannot explain something to a first-year-old, it's because you don't understand it. So I think that everyone should be able to, to grasp uh, science in such a way that, that you can talk about the fundamental things, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to go and, and write a Lagrangian. I mean, for example, you don't know what that is, right? That's, that, is, that is fine. But, but I think that people should be more comfortable talking about science. I mean, there, it is always the case then that, or, or at least very often, you are in a plane and they ask you, what do you do? And they, you say, I'm a physicist. Oh, my God. There the is always this sentence never fails. I was such bad at math. And I, I was such a bad at physics when I was in high school. And, and it seems like, I mean, I think that sometimes probably it's our fault. We have solved this idea that only smart, you know, like genius-like people uh, are good for science. I think that science is good for everyone and everyone is good for science. I mean, I think that anyone can do science regardless their origin, their, their beliefs even, their, their, I don't know, race, ethnicity, whatever. I think that anyone can do science uh, from any gender or anything. And, and it's not something that it has to be tough. We have, we have to get rid of that idea that only, only Genii can do can do, only geniuses can do science mm-hmm. or that only smart people and that this is only for smart people at the end, I mean, every, I mean to be a lawyer probably you have to be very smart I, I couldn't do it, right? And you have to be smart to be good at what you're doing you, or you have to be hard worker it's not, it's not something about the capabilities of the person I think that is something about the way that you approach things to make them efficient and to make them valuable and I think that science is very important if you want to to make policy in an efficient way mm-hmm. and also consistent with the needs, but also uh, also that, uh, that, that you 're going to do what it is, when it needs to be done and not something because i don 't know somebody told the president in his ear that 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 climate change is not true, and then that was the all i mean you know it's it has to be there has to be more more solid basis to make decisions and I think that 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 is precisely what science uh, it can provide solid basis. After all, I mean, you you, you can use I me. Mean, you can stream this through Facebook because mm-hmm. there was because science made quantum mechanics that made the microprocessor that is making this computer work. Mm-hmm. So science works. That is the that is the I mean that is the best argument for science. It works. So we should be. And more- I gotta
1: say, the glaring example of our politicians not understanding how the science works was when they questioned Mark Zuckerberg in the Senate. Which was it was clear that none of them had any understanding about what they were talking about. But yeah, mm-hmm. I'm with you. <clears throat>
2: but uh, t- touching on this um, term, you said "solid basis." Uh, there's a question I wanted to ask you, which is: You came from a background of philosophy. Philosophy also tries to answer the big questions, mostly yeah. about the you know human psyche and conscious and all this stuff. Ha- has your journey to physics provided any? Support or, or not to any philosophy theories, or likewise, any philosophy theories that you've been, you've been able to implement into the physics world? or.
3: I would love to say yes, but I would be lying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that was something that I wanted to do when I arrived to philosophy. I mean, I, I thought, like, out oh, oh, to physics, sorry. I, I thought that it was going to be this beautiful complement. And I, I think that philosophy was great for me in the sense that it shaped a lot in my. My way of studying, definitely, but also it gave me, let's say, I mean, without being uh, petulant, uh, some maturity in the way that I, in the way that I approach my studies, mm-hmm. right? I knew that I wanted to study something fundamental. I knew that I wanted to work with education. I was able to start working as a high school teacher when I was like 18 years old because I had studied philosophy. So, so philosophy gave me a lot of tools about that, that later helped me a lot to succeed in physics. But uh, unfortunately what I what I what the things that I used to read when I was in philosophy were things like hermeneutics or uh, from Martin Heidegger, I don't know. Uh, things that are not very related to, to what I do as a physicist. Um, but, uh, but yeah and, and I stopped reading philosophy for, for many years so so, I, yeah, it would be difficult for me to say that, but, but I do think that there is some sub, uh, underlying structure that, that helped me a lot to, to, to see myself as a physicist and, and my role as an educator.
2: Has your understanding of, the, of physics given you any insight into the human condition or the human experience?
3: No. <laughs> No, in that I'm with you. I'm, I'm equal, equal, yeah, equal to everyone, as okay. lost as everyone. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so you can't tell me what's wrong with me. <laughs>
3: okay. Uh.
4: Uh, Jake from the booth again. Uh, <laughs> Hi, Jake. Um, what's, your, what's your research focusing on these days, uh, Professor?
3: So I'm working right now in three different projects. One of them has to do with dark matter. So I, so we're trying to model how certain types of dark matter, so there are many candidates for what this dark matter particle is, because we know so little about it that we're trying to come up with what is the best model and how do we test this model. Uh, There are many ways to test it. Some of that is, for example, the collider that Nicolas has mentioned before. Uh, But I'm trying to see how certain types of dark matter can be tested by using astrophysical phenomena. This is, for example, when you have a supermassive black hole in the center of a galaxy, how if you had certain types of dark matter surrounding that galaxy, uh, how the growth of this black hole would be changed depending on one type of another of dark matter
4: what what is a black hole
3: ah uh, okay that 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 connects to the second topic in which i'm working so one of the predictions of so as as, as you heard before uh, as I said before, general relativity says. The, uh, the presence of mass affects the the geometry of the space-time of the space. So when you have a very a very massive object that has so much mass, but there is nothing keeping it, you know, like like a sphere, it, because all this mass is attracting each other, it will collapse, and at some point it will collapse so much that it's so dense that it forms the structure of the geometry around. So that you don't see it anymore and you, you don't see anything beyond certain point inside that region. That thing we call a black hole. And uh-huh. the region that determines the last point from which you can see light is what we call the horizon of the black hole. Uh, so these are things that exist. This is, I mean, this, this is, you have seen like Interstellar and some movies where you mm-hmm. see black holes, but that is not science fiction, right? That is science. And how accurate
2: is that movie, by the way?
3: Uh, the the simulations of how the black hole looks and everything, I think that they are accurate in the sense that they are the result of numerical simulations led by Kip Thorne and his team. Uh, Kip Thorne is the Nobel Prize laureate from a couple of years ago, and uh, he so it was a, a, a team a team from Caltech, so it's sci- that was scientifically made. Okay. The things about you know like oh, that you can send messages through, I don't know, through from here to there and the, yeah. that thing, that, that, that is the science fiction right. of, of it. But and like if, you,
2: I, if I were to go to a, like what they did there, I think they go to a planet that is really close to a black hole and I guess time. Right. So, so to, it exactly. When, so
3: when I say that the geometry is deformed, I mean that really what is changing is the way that you measure distance and time. Mm-hmm. So that's why they say like, oh yeah, gotcha. if, you sp- if you spend there seven minutes, it would be like, I don't know how many years away. So that that is that is that is accurate in this. I mean, conceptually, it is it is accurate. So so in the center of big galaxies, I mean, we have one for example, but there are other galaxies in which you have a huge black holes. When I say huge, it's like 10 to the nine solar masses. That is a billion. Oh, uh, uh, there is a black hole with the ma- whose mass is one billion times the mass of our sun. So it's pretty massive, right? So, and these guys are eating up things that are cl- nearby. We call that like a disk. It's called like an accretion disk. Uh, so we're trying to understand if we can use, for example, that system to, to put constraints, that is to exclude or to include in the list of possibilities for dark matter models. Certain types that we have we have a list that we are running, so that is one of my one of my projects the other the other the rest of the time i'm thinking about about black holes, but in a more theoretical level uh, I'm trying to understand how is that quantum mechanical systems are affected when they are in the vicinity of a black hole because at that point you have a very strong effect i mean you have you have a very uh, important uh, gravitational system, the black hole, which is a is gravi- yeah, it's, it's there because of gravity, but also it has some quantum mechanical properties. So the, I think that that is the best laboratory to understand uh, how the quantum gravity works. So that is uh, the type of topics in which I spend the, the rest of my time.
2: Do you have any theories as to what happens to matter or light
3: once it enters a black hole? Uh, I, I don't have any any hypothesis I think that we have a, the, 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 the current understanding is that if you drop something into a black hole this is where things start becoming paradoxical uh, if you are an observer who throws something into a black hole and you just you have some machine to keep you you know from going you actually will never see the particle going into the black hole you would, see, you would see that it gets destroyed and spread, we say scrambled, mm. across, the, across the black hole horizon. Whereas if you decide to let go and you fall, the fun thing is that you don't even realize when you cross the horizon. You just keep going. It's nothing different from if you are in the space just flying around without, without any, any gravitational pull. Uh, and those two things are supposed to be equivalent. We call that the equivalence principle. But we're trying to understand if that principle is indeed obeyed or not when you put it with quantum mechanics. Interesting.
4: I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: I, it's not going to work. Uh, okay. I don't know if this is inside your scope, but there there was a... Um, there's a Harvard professor. I believe he's the head of the astrophysics department. Do you uh, know where I'm going Abby, with this? Loeb, yes. Yeah. Do you? Uh, he's claiming that there is either some sort of extraterrestrial UFO orbiting Jupiter right now. Do you? <laughs> does your studies go anything into that? And if so, no, is there?
3: Okay. I, I don't. But I. I mean, I've, I've seen. I've seen. Actually, read, read the paragraph. In, in their paper about this, oh, yeah. um, I mean, on one hand, yes, there, there have been astrophysicists around the globe who have criticized a lot his claim, mm-hmm. just because I mean he is in a very powerful position. I mean he's the the, uh, the director of the of the Center for Astrophysics of Harvard. Right. So that gives him uh, a huge, uh, you know, microphone to to make any claim. And so people, some people have said that it's responsible. I really don't have a, an opinion about about if what he said. Okay, just res- tell us just briefly what he not. said. So, so there is this very funnily shaped, like a cigar or something like that, object that came into our solar system, and and it was following a trajectory that is not exactly what it was expected, and it came from a region from where nobody was expecting it, right? So. I mean, I don't think that that is the weirdest thing, anyways. He the, so th- there was this paper written by by uh, I know, I don't remember if he was just Loeb and or Loeb and company. Then it was more than one author.
1: Right, mm-hmm. he's the, he's st- fully uh, standing by it though. But yeah,
3: right. So so anyway, so 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 in this paper they studied pretty much the orbit and the properties of this object and everything, and and but in the very last paragraph or so. They do say, uh, it might be that, I mean, another thing that could explain this is that this is some extraterrestrial vessel that that, that was sent here uh, with high technology and, and you know, and, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons why we would say this is because it's coming from a place where nobody was expecting it, right? But that was it. I mean, it's not like they are claiming that this is it, you know, this, this is approved, you know, there is no there is not really a claim that that is, that is proven and this is how we prove it okay the i thought
1: what i saw in the washington post was him saying no 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 ufo
3: i i i think okay so i didn't read it yeah, but it might I, be I, I could be i just i just yeah, looked i just looked at the scientific paper article. yeah i just looked at the scientific paper i, didn't, I haven't looked at any any media outlet uh, article okay. so i think i think that that some that some, some articles might have <clears throat> might have misread this as as oh this is you know, this is a scientist mm-hmm. claiming that this Harvard is Harvard scientist, yeah. Truth. Right. But but honestly I I mean I that that is as much as I know. Right. I mean you probably have read more about it than than me. Uh, I only I only just for curiosity when it, the paper came out, just looked through the paper and mm-hmm. and I saw that last paragraph and I know that people were, you know, raving about and and, and, and having a lot of opinions, I'm not an astrophysicist, and I'm not an astronomer who, who studied those type of systems, so I cannot professionally say anything. Gotcha. And and I have no, I I have no, I don't know much of the work of Abi except for for some other papers in other topic that is very different from that, that is more related to these black holes that grow in the center of a galaxy. Uh, in that regard, I do respect him a lot because that work was very good. But I don't know anything about this type of work. Okay. So scientifically speaking, I cannot say anything because I don't I don't understand uh, the specifics of, of that work. Gotcha. And about claiming that something is a you, I th- I don't think that I don't think that it's easy to ob- to obtain be a big proof from the way that something moves. And yep. just the shape uh, that that is that there is there might be a, a, a an extraterrestrial vessel or some shape yeah. or something like that. But Jake, did p- you see it?
4: Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah, as, as soon as four days ago, he is sticking by his claims that it's definitely a UFO. So he's saying it's, it's definitely same? a UFO. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right.
1: So I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. That's what I thought. That that was the Washington Post article. Yeah. Correct. That's what yeah. I thought. Yeah. So that's, I, I don't know. But Jake you, thinks I'm crazy. The obviously. UFO is
2: not. It's not. Does an not necessarily mean that it's a an extra-terrestri- extraterrestrial. extraterrestrial. It's just an un- unidentified. He's claiming object. extraterrestrial UFO. Okay.
1: Uh, um, yeah. I don't.
2: But uh, putting, putting that paper Sorry. aside and that claim aside, um, as a physicist, um, <clears throat> do you think there's a probability that there's a life out there? I mean, given the size of the universe and I, how I think particles so. behave?
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, Thank you. He's been calling
1: me crazy on this for well, I mean, <laughs> months I mean,
3: now. I, I think that is likely. Yeah. How likely it is, I think that it's difficult to put a number in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it also depends. I mean, we are very anthropocentric, Yeah. right? I oh. mean, for, for thousands of years, we thought that we were the center of the universe. And I think that even after 500 years, sometimes we are uh, uh, reluctant to give up the idea that we are special. Yeah. But I don't think that there is anything special about it. Of course, the the place where the earth is, in the type of star that we have, with the type of planets that we have. You know, we have Jupiter for example pro- that that is sort of like protecting us from ast- from from uh, comets mm-hmm. coming towards the earth, right? Because it's so big that it will, you know, like attract things. You know, it's like yeah. a, there are all these very special conditions, the, the distance that we have to the earth uh, to the sun. Uh, is, is such that we can have an atmosphere if we were closer it would evaporate if we were farther it would be too cold you know we are in a very in a very special place in the solar system for example, and within the galaxy we are also in a in a special place in the orion orion arm where the mm-hmm. where the earth is we are not very close to the center of the of the galaxy where we would be likely to i mean our sun would be likely to hit another star we are we are very well placed mm-hmm. right so that makes it a very particular place for life to to thrive, right? But the universe has quite a lot of galaxies, and it's pretty damn big. So I wouldn't see why not across the universe. There could be another star pretty much in similar positions, in the similar position where the sun is, with a similar system, and and where there is a planet more or less at the same distance as the Earth, I don't know, or some other conditions that might be <coughs> even more favorable, where where life might exist, or might have existed, or will exist. But I, I don't think that I don't think that we have the copyright on life, physically speaking. I mean, I love how you phrase is, that. Yeah. I mean, there is the. I mean, after all, is, is chemistry. There are some physical mm-hmm. principles, and the physical principles. I mean, that that is nature. I mean, do we. Uh, we, know, we know that the universe is pretty homogeneous and isotropic. That is, it's pretty well distributed. And wherever you look, it will look the same, right? right? The universe doesn't have a center. And, we, and it's definitely, and we are not the center. So, so I don't think that is, that is impossible for life to, to exist or for life to my, I mean, if life existed or will exist somewhere else in the universe. Now, that is one question. The question about if we will have contact with another civilization, sure. that is, I think that that is more unlikely. Just because of, I mean, we will have to have the coincidence that this other civilization has to be more advanced than, than, than we are so they can send, say, a signal, but then they have to have a very good source for power to be mm-hmm. able to send a signal very far away. I mean, the next star to us is only four light years away. That means that light it takes for a signal to get there four years, but that is just in terms of distance. Never mind how much energy you have to put into the signal, so it makes it that far away. Mm-hmm. I mean if you are with a with a radio, if you get a, you get far away the, the longer you go, the farther you go, the weakest is the signal right? so So the communication is not so easy. Never mind traveling right because that requires transporting matter right. that 's a different story so
1: I'd also throw in that we've seen movies, but I'd also throw in that there's also no guarantee that that life form could exist here. So even UFOs coming here is, I would think, unlikely if it hasn't happened yet.
3: Right, so, right, yeah. right. So why would they want to come here and and from where? Because we are, we already know that in Proxima Centauri or in this system that mm-hmm. is the closest to us over there, we don't, we know that there, I mean, there is no life there. So who, I mean, at least, uh, yeah, life as we know it. Oh, and especially intelligent life. Mm-hmm. So, so who knows? Who, yeah, who knows where? But probably very far away. But it might be that yeah, that thirty thousand light, uh, light years away from us, there is there is life. There is life. But but for a signal from us to get there, or from there to get here, it would take thirty thousand years. All right. I mean, that is pretty much what they before uh, the humanity started writing. I don't know. So so. The universe is pretty big, and our life is pretty short. And when I say our life, it's our life as a species. Yeah. So, so the, that we have communication, of course. Don't don't quote me on this as a scientist. I'm I, this is not. I'm way, way out of my field here. <laughs> here I'm just you know just yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just thinking about about what I do know about the universe, and that is very big, right? And that resources are limited. I mean, you need energy to make anything go from one side to another, right? I mean, one of, the, one of the challenges for us to go to Mars is precisely that I mean, you, if you go, how are you going to return? Because you don't have energy to come back, right? Just the, just the question of energy to travel, right, from within our solar system is a huge challenge. Never mind going to another solar system. Mm-hmm. So, but, but in, terms of, in terms of statistics, I do think that the probability that there is life somewhere else in the universe it's definitely... It's definitely, that is how we are. you cannot say that. It's, it's not zero. Way out. I, I think way, that very likely. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think that it is not zero. I don't think that it's, it's huge, but I don't think that it's zero.
4: Mm-hmm. What do you think of
3: Space Force?
2: <laughs> what is that?
3: <laughs> we have a Space Force. It's called NASA. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. He's not wrong. But <clears throat> right. Okay, so I, we, I have... Right, um, did we want to dive into that? Because I... Yeah, whatever oh, um, that was I made a couple of those <laughs> So there,
2: there's been a couple of studies that show that scientists in general uh, like, tend, tend like, to be they, uh, uh, lose their religiosity you know through their studies it, it doesn't necessarily mean they're atheists it's just they might have a sense of a deist uh, being but the, the religious and the superstition that comes along with it Especially with organized in, uh, religious institutions, tend to be lost throughout the science. This is particularly true in the realm of physics. Coupled with what you just said about how we're not the center of the universe, we don't hold a copyright on life. Um, how how can you transmit the information you know right without scaring the layman population who do have a strong um, religious belief that might directly contradict um, what science is telling us?
3: I do, I do think that we need to, I, I think that as a society, we need to learn how to differentiate the realms of religion and science. Right? Uh, I think that science has no business talking about God just because, I mean, as a physicist, I cannot say anything about God. I mean, what can I say? God is not defined in my in my language. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I, 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 I am a scientist. I, I study nature. right? That doesn't mean, and it's true, that, 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 that scientists, they tend to be a, atheists or, a, or at least are, are religious. You find a lot of people who believe in the, the God of Spinoza, the philosopher from, what was that, the 17th century? I don't know. Mm-hmm. who believed in some god that was not like a person, but, you know, some entity that was basically the, the everything, right? The, like nature, right? Mm-hmm. The, the thing that permeates, permeates well, what is the word? Permeates. Permeates. Permeates everything, and, and that is the, the absolute substance, right? That was Spinoza's uh, god, and, and that is something that I think that some scientists can, can, can take as their god. But but it's true that there is a challenge when you're talking about science with a religious person. And okay, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna dive into something that is that is polemic. But anyways, ah, never mind. Uh, my my brother is a is a priest. Mm-hmm. He's a Franciscan priest. Uh, so I I do talk with him uh, every now and then about this, because he is a priest and. And, but even as a priest, he has a very secular way of seeing sometimes his religion. For example, he doesn't he doesn't think that that there is a God that is, you know, like right now is taking notes of what we are saying here to then, you know, decide what he's gonna do with us. I mean, starting with assigning him a gender, right? Or something like that. He doesn't believe that there is, that, that, that that that's how things work right i think that people have i mean, for again i'm paraphrasing my brother these are not my, my 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 views but but he 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 believes that 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 religion has to get rid of a lot of the mysticism and magic mm-hmm. in the sense that i mean, that people go to him and this is colombia so people go to him saying like oh father can you bless this water and and then he actually said, well, why do you want me to bless the water? I won't change the, the chemical composition or anything. But, I mean, you, you if you want to believe that there's something special, just believe it. But don't think that there is going to be something magical that is going to happen just because you put this water in your place. Mm-hmm.
5: Uh-huh.
3: Right? So so when you approach religion, see if from, from the point of view where you don't think that there is, there is magic, you know, like Harry Potter-like uh, events where things will appear or life will will behave just because it was decided, you know, with a, with, you know, by flipping some, I don't know. uh, Then uh, I think that, I think that that there is not much controversy between science and religion. I do think that, that science and religion, they are bound to, 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 to clash if they go to fundamental uh, levels and they want to decide what is I mean, if if they go into each other's realm and they want to decide on that realm, what what should be? Uh, I don't. I mean, in particular, we, we we are in a Catholic university, and and I think at some point, if I re, if I remember correctly, uh, I, one uh, the Catholic Pope, uh, the Church officially said probably that a. Uh, that there was no problem with evolution, for example mm-hmm. right and uh, but but some people might still believe that, that no that, that you cannot believe in evolution just because you know that that is that doesn't go with their beliefs so at that point, I don't think that science has much to say because if you i mean if people are not willing to accept facts that, i mean you, you see a, you see a bone right and a bone of a, of a a dinosaur, how are you going mm-hmm. to deny that there is no evolution, right? Or, right. you know, I mean, or, or, <coughs> the, or, yeah. or yeah, there is a clear set of evidence that shows that, that something has happened. But yeah, that's if a, that yeah.
2: that's a huge step forward, but from my recollection, the Pope did say that evolution is not a problem, but then he right. added that, however, we've had a soul since the beginning. Um, again. A, a, there, there's always going to be some friction, well, right? I, yeah, but I can to give a
1: clear example of what you're describing. It sounds like <coughs> Pope Francis also said that global warming is is happening, and we need to do something about it. And there are still people who are denying it. And at that point, what does the science community, what does the scientific community do? I'm sorry if I cut you off. That, I just thought that that was right.
2: Uh, that's fine. Yeah. yeah, no, I understand. Yeah, I understand. It's just i I feel like there's always going to be some sort of friction, uh, and yeah. I think it's also because there's this inherent fear of wanting to offend someone, especially someone you care about, right right um, If I'm going to go take a test, and my grandmother calls me and says, Oh, I'm going to go, you know lit a candle now so you do well." My reaction is going to be, thank you, Grandma. You know, this means a lot. I'm not going to call her out and say, why are you doing that? That's not going to do anything. Right. Uh, Especially because I know that it's not going to mean anything to her and it's not going to change her. Uh, But I think collectively when we take that approach, um, in countries such as the United States that tend to be very Mm faith-based, science tends to take a backseat.
1: Yeah. I agree. I I just... With what you're describing, I'm not sure there's that big of a problem there because mm-hmm. if someone's going in for surgery and they've been properly prepped, they're properly whatever, they're, they've eaten what they were supposed to eat uh, ahead of time, all the doctors are the best trained that they could be. I don't really see a problem with the family praying before they go in because, honestly, if it makes them more comfortable, which is where I think science and religion can coincide... If it makes them more comfortable and that leads to a more successful surgery because the patient is more comfortable. Mm-hmm. No, and I agree, yeah, then I I agree think with it, you. 100%, I think that's where it can be beneficial. Regardless
2: of whether prayer works or it's the placebo effect, I agree yeah. with you 100%. Yeah. My problem is when someone won't have the surgery because they believe that prayer works better.
1: Well, the government's allowed to step in uh-huh. here. Right. Yeah, and then
2: yeah. that's a legal question, right? Yeah, but, yeah. But, but I, I guess that would be a more concrete example of, I guess, what I'm referring to. Because earlier we talked about how uh, you were saying how people try to um, promote both sides of science. And you try you do see that in a lot of states where they try to promote uh, both the creationist argument and the evolutionary argument. and Intelligent I think, design. They call right, it, intelligent yeah. design. And that's, that's when... It gets hazy because I think it's, it's I think it's what you mentioned that it's one realm trying to tell the other, right. you know, how things are.
3: Yeah, I, I think that I think that that uh, yeah, in in religious contexts, many times uh, science has been demonized in that in that sense that oh, you are gonna come here and deprive me of my religion, or you're gonna take away my religious beliefs because you're going to do science. Mm-hmm. But again, I think that that we need to understand that science has a very specific uh, target, right? And it's Uh understanding, as a physicist, I want to understand how nature works, what are the most fundamental principles of nature, and how how can we improve society from that. Now, if you want to illuminate illuminate that with religion as, I'm going to use science to improve humanity, as we do in loyola you know for a transformative education you know to do to bring justice to the world and everything i think that that's fine but if it is if 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 you're trying to say no i'm sorry uh, you know yeah medicine cannot work like that because because you know i ca- i can cure you this way that i think that that is not understanding uh, the 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 different the different roles of of each of the of these two, I don't know, components of of society work. Okay. okay,
2: fair enough. So you yeah, go I, ahead. I did
1: want to ask, from the do you see anything from the scientific community? You said that the religious community demonizes scientific community. Do you see the reverse, where the scientific community is demonizing the religious community, and that's also causing some hostilities, or it less? So?
3: I, I think that I think that. that when scientists maybe they think something that they they regret the religiosity of people Mm -hmm. is precisely because they they see it as an obstacle for people to to actually taking science seriously
5: right
1: The Uh, yeah i hear you and I, i understand what you're saying the religious community would say the exact opposite would say that they see science as a way, as an obstacle for people to understand what they're trying to preach. The difference is one is faith-based, one's fact-based. So yeah, I hear you. Right. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a challenge. I have no advice for
2: how to deal with that. <laughs> I just, I think you touched on a very, mm-hmm. I think you touched on uh, at the point I was trying to get to, which is. That's what the, I'm here for. The faith-based argument. Yeah. And it's breaking that barrier because it completely contradicts with what the scientific method really stands for. Uh, Because as you mentioned earlier, you know, you you formulate a hypothesis, you test it out, and from that you either, you know, prove your theory or you go back to the drawing board. Um, It's not only religious institutions, but political institutions as well. They tend to take a more absolutist stance. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the friction I was mentioning comes from. Uh, But again, (laughs) if you want to get, you know, in depth with this, go hear my four-hour episode with Richard and Jake. (laughs) six right but i want to i want to move on um to the subject of meaning finding meaning in life because uh, like someone like me um i also do believe i am just a chemical composition i do believe i am not the center of the universe i don't believe there is a deity dictating um what i ought to do or not um and sometimes people the question i get asked uh, a, a lot is you know how do you find meaning or guidance in your life what what kind of compass do you use to navigate you know the moral ground between good and, and, and bad I don't know if you, if you experienced this in any form or if there's something that's come up or some conversations that you had with yourself about you know what it means to have the human experience
3: mm. Wow, we are right to the question of the, of the meaning of life. We're getting back yeah. into that philosophy part. I'm of taking your, you back to your undergrad. Yeah. <laughs> in my personal experience, I did find uh, the meaning of what I wanted to do early in working with, with people. Mm-hmm. So I, I grew up in this poor neighborhood that I mentioned, but I think that one factor that helped me a lot was that I grew up also in the church. So it was a an altar boy, is that we call it mm-hmm. in English, and and I grew up a, basically as as the mentee of of this priest who who was a very brave uh, leader in the community in a community where they, they we were in the middle of a a war of gangs and and you know every every night there would be a shooting and and this guy arrived and and organized the community he would he organized like a peace process in the in the neighborhood. And took all the kids from the neighborhood, like 250 kids. They, he organized them in 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 a in a football, the real football school. So mm-hmm. in teams, and he organized some tournaments so to keep them busy. And then he organized the 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 young the young people, like you know, between the teenagers and, and the twenties, in community. So he organized the whole community. And I was this kid. I was like not nine years old. Who was uh, working with him, and I saw him do this with the community and and I, and that sort of clicked so that's that's very neat hmm. that you can be you can, you can do this that you can work you can do such great things for the for, for, for other people and and I learned to work with people with him and I, and I saw that I liked that and that I was good at that that I think that set uh, for me a uh, uh, a way of being. Uh, be working with the community, working for to to help uh, these uh, communities that were in such big problems at the time, and so I I entered a, actually a seminary when that's what, how I also ended in philosophy because I entered a seminary, I thought that I was going to be a priest because I wanted to be like like Carlos Alberto this is the priest with whom I grew up and and I work with the community and I felt uh, great doing it so so I thought that that was. But then studying philosophy, I discovered that 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 the structure of the church wasn't for me. Eh, but but definitely, I wanted to keep working with the community, and that's how I became an educator. But I think that eh, what has set you know my my compass, if you wanna call it like that, for for what I want to do in life and how I want to do it. I I think that I think that. If you want to use religion or not to to say this is what you want to do in the in my case it has been to serve the people, okay, right? And uh, at some point I wanted to be a politician in Colombia. Thank God, <laughs> I didn't I didn't go that we way. We need people but, like you. So, yeah.
1: but uh, you but, <clears throat> mentioned soccer when you were nine in Colombia. That I was that actually that was one of uh, I believe whether sorry it was Pablo Escobar still in uh, power at that time.
3: Because uh, that was for, one of his, for some part of it, yeah. Yeah.
1: That was one of his major, it's odd to be having this conversation, but that was one of his major philanthropic things, was soccer, uh, pumping money into soccer for youth programs. Uh, I mean, it, football, was, it, but, was, yeah.
3: it was the, the, the way that, that not only the Cartel de Medellín, mm-hmm. but also the Cartel de Cali, I mean, yeah. there were all the different cartels, they, they had money into some of the, our mm-hmm. football clubs in Colombia. Yeah, I mean, it's I meant
1: the youth program specifically. Yeah, yeah, for sure, um, they were polarizing yeah. figures. Right. Um,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. Yeah, it was a time where pretty much they touched every aspect of our society. Yeah. Right. We have come long ways from that, from those days. But, uh, but yeah, they were. Those were. No, I just, I just happen to
1: know that. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. one of his philanthropic efforts, which is an odd thing to pop in my mind. But yeah,
2: um, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I want to finish with a a physics question. All right. Kind of just kind of preparing for this talk. I didn't do much. I purposely didn't do much. But something I kept coming, uh, popping up was um, um, uh, conservation law uh, in physics. Mm -hmm. Um, It was very confusing when I tried to read about it. I don't know if you can kind of explain that. And then the second question has to do with uh, the symmetry. The symmetry we see a lot in the universe. Uh, and it's so prevalent, um, and if we know anything about why there's so much symmetry.
3: Right. That was, a, that was the program that led physics, the theoretical physics community, during the last century. So let's start with, I mean, both questions are basically, this. without knowing you're asking the same thing twice, <laughs> okay. which is great. So the thing about conservation is uh, there are some laws in physics, for example. if if we if we are doing something here, you know, performing an experiment, we are dropping we're dropping a, a a pen, right, and, mm-hmm. and measuring how long it takes the, the pen to fall, mm-hmm. right. And without knowing, this room starts moving at some constant speed in that direction. Let's say some constant velocity, mm-hmm. right. If we are moving, we drop the pen and everything. There is no experiment that tells us that we are moving. I mean, if these were moving at uh, a constant velocity, the physics of what happens in this room mm-hmm. won't change. Okay. Right. That means that the physics, w- or the laws of physics that govern what what is happening in this in this uh, room, they are, we say, translational invariant, uh-huh. because we are moving. Or oh, if we, we do it here, it will be the same if we do it there, uh-huh. right? And one of the and then so that is that is basically a symmetry, uh-huh. right? If you do it, if you move it, and the physics over there is going to be the same physics as here, then the physics is invariant, it is symmetric under this transformation. By transformation means that we're not doing it here, we're doing it there. So that we call it asymmetry. And when we have asymmetry, whenever we have asymmetry in a system like that, or when we discover that there is some symmetry, then... Uh, there was a, a female mathematician, a woman, Emily Nether. She actually formulated very nicely in a theorem saying that whenever there is a symmetry like that, there has to be something that is conserved. Huh. They, and that, conser- that conserved quantity, we call it a, a, a charge. But it, that thing that is conserved, in this case, for example, when things are here the same that they are there, is called momentum. So we say the momentum is conserved. Uh, but for, ex- for example, the momentum has to do with the amount of motion that there is in particles when they move in a straight line, for example. But for example, there are other systems that that that, that are the same if you look at them like in this direction or if you rotate them, and mm. it's the same the same the same physics, right? Things that they look the same in any direction where you look, so they are basically invariant under rotations, mm. right? So that is a symmetry that says that rotations don't affect the physics of the system. So then you use the theorem again to say, well, if there is a symmetry, there must be some charge that is conserved, some quantity that is conserved. Well, that quantity is angular momentum, Okay. right? And then there is an, an even more special one. The thing that if we do, perf- if you perform an experiment here, mm-hmm. that's a, uh, and we, op- we take the data, and we come back tomorrow and perform the same experiment with the same uh, parameters, the physics hasn't changed that means that the laws of physics that have, that, that govern the, the, the fall of the pen for example they are invariant under time right that that time so time is a symmetry of the system and then you the question is what is the charge that is conserved right yeah. that charge that is conserved is energy that's how we why we talk about conservation of energy that energy is not created or destroyed It just Transformed, right? Mm-hmm. But energy is so, so that when people realized this, that it was some pattern, that whenever we had some symmetry, we could find some other something that, that is conserved, and that by requ- then uh, people started looking at equations and say, well, apparently things in physics they are important when they are symmetric, and and then people started assigning to this symmetry some beauty value. Because mm-hmm. when people say, oh, the math is beautiful, it's because it is symmetric. Oh, okay. So that, that started a that program. Sense. And right now there is a controversy going around because some people have been saying that, that we have to stop thinking like that. Some people say that, no, that we can keep thinking like that. But it, it actually paid out very quickly, very soon, when people, like for example, Einstein wanted, wanted for things to be symmetric, for the physics to be invariant, not only, when, not only when you take this room and make it move at constant velocity, but when you make it also move at, at an accelerated way. So you, he wanted to see how the things change so that the physics is invariant. And that's what led him to write general relativity. But for example, when people were developing the, the quantum mechanics, there is a, an equation that tells me how, how things are quantum, so how an atom, for example, works, right? A normal, you know, in the, 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 the an electron in the hydrogen atom, it has there is an equation that tells me what energy it should have and everything that is called the Schrodinger equation. Never mind the name. There was a, a, a physicist called Dirac who didn't like this equation because that equation was not beautiful enough for him. By that, he meant it wasn't compatible with Einstein's special relativity. The fact that if I take this and move it at constant velocity, nothing should change, right? So he didn't like that equation because it wasn't beautiful enough. Mm-hmm. So he actually came up with an equation that was compatible with ancient special relativity. It's now called the Dirac equation, and and he saw that the electron indeed is contained as a solution to that equation, so it's fine. But he realized that there was another solution that that equation allowed for, and. E- and it should be a particle that was identical to the electron with the same mass, but opposite charge. And he was confused. He thought that that was maybe not physical. Or not the, the, He tried to interpret it in a very different way because we hadn't seen such a particle. A particle identical to the electron, but with positive charge? That's crazy. They hadn't seen. And then uh, very soon after that, a, a, some experimentalists actually discovered in a cloud, in, a, in, a, in some <coughs> cloud of, 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 in some chamber with some, uh, we call it a cloud chamber, where you had some steam, some vapor, and then particles would come through and would ionize the, the the gas, and then you would see the tracks. They discovered that there was a particle that was behaving exactly like in ele- an electron with positive charge, but with the same mass and everything. That was when we discovered the positron. And, and that was a fantastic thing because Dirac wasn't expecting that. Yeah. He was just looking for, beautiful, for, for beauty in the math. So, so that started a program of looking for for, equa- for, for equations that were invariant under certain uh, transformations and see what that predicted. And that's how precisely Steven Weinberg, we go back to the beginning, how Steven Weinberg, Glashow, and uh, Abdul Salam. Wrote the standard model of particle physics. Mm-hmm. The the equations of motion in that, that 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 model predicts are invariant under certain transformations. And the consequences of those transformations is that there are things that are conserved, like the electric charge, mm-hmm. for example. And th- and there are some interactions, like these particles that I mentioned, the, glu- the the gluons and the and the W and the and the, and the Z bosons. Those guys show up in the math because we are requiring that the math is invariant under these symmetries. So the the symmetry program was very important for the development of what we call today particle physics. Uh, There are some extended symmetries that people have proposed. One is called supersymmetry, but uh, never mind, there's some extra symmetry that we want to impose on the models that we have that predict the existence of other particles, and those we haven't found in the, in the LHC. Some people think that we might not be able to find. So at this point, the community is split in so, uh, be, between two groups, in two groups. Some group, a group that says, well, this project has worked, and maybe we can keep working on it for a while more. Uh, and so people that say, who say that, that, that we've had enough, that maybe we need to reformulate the way that we approach physics. I think that there, I mean, the, the jury is still out in the sense that we don't know yet if, I mean, what way to take, right? Yeah. But, but the, but yeah, the program of of conservation laws and symmetries in physics was the main driver of of the development of theoretical physics during the 20th century. Okay. That's probably a super long answer to your you know, question, but, but I, I think we've run conspiracy. out of time. Yeah. yeah. So, Professor, thanks no, for coming on. No, thank you, guys. This, yeah. this was
2: great. No, this was fantastic. I think we all learned a lot. Thank you so much for coming. And no, thanks. And hope to have you back, you know, sometime in the near future.
3: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: I'm I'm Richard Leibovitz. I'm Nico Fina.
3: Walter Tangarife.
2: And
1: that's Dialogue de Novo. We'll see you next week. <laughs>
5: pam 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 param, pam 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 param. Pam param. Pam pam param.